Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gay A, a podcast about sobriety for the LGBT plus community and our allies. I'm your host, Steve Bennett Martin. I am an alcoholic and I'm grateful for my younger brother, Mickey. As of this recording, I am 452 days sober, and today we're welcoming a guest to share their experience, wisdom, and hope with you. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great having you. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself to the listeners? Sure. My name is Mark. I am an addict and alcoholic, and I have about 16 and a half years. My sobriety date is November 21st, 2005. I live in Jersey City, New Jersey, and my home fellowship is CMA in New York City. Oh, excellent. And what are some of your favorite hobbies that you found in sobriety? I would say in sobriety, I definitely learned to love Broadway. So I love going into the city and going to see Broadway shows, cooking. So I often tell the story that I got sober with Ina Garten and Giada De Laurentiis because every day when I would come home from all of my outpatient programs, I would sit on the couch and watch those cooking shows on Food Network. And it sort of re-inspired, reinvigorated the hobby of cooking. So it's a huge stress relief for me. That's awesome. And why don't we get right into it then? Tell us a little bit about what it was like with your journey with alcohol and addiction. Sure. You know, I grew up third generation alcoholic, right? My grandfather and a lot of his brothers were functioning alcoholics. My father and both of his brothers were functioning alcoholics. Both of my brothers and I and my younger cousin have all entered the rooms of sobriety. The first thing I was ever addicted to was probably pretend. You know, I was always looking for some sort of an escape, you know, and the first piece of shame I ever felt was before I went to school, I was shamed out of like, you know, trying my mom's clothes on or walking around in my sister's shoes or grabbing a pair of dangly earrings that I wanted to wear, you know, clip-ons. And that was the first time I really remember somebody saying, you can't do that. It's not normal. You know, and life life went on, right? And as a young gay kid who didn't quite understand what that even really was or what to do with it, but I knew it wasn't okay, you know, based on what other people were saying, that it that really led to a lot of the icks and isms kind of cropping up in how I acted and reacted to things. I'm also like five foot three on a good day. So that was the next thing that people made me feel badly about was, you know, my height. And weirdly enough, that one projects all the way into adult gayhood where like that became a trigger for me where like people be like, oh, well, he's cute, but he's too short, you know? So I didn't really drink in high school or any of the like I really was a late bloomer when it came to my actual addiction taking off. When I went to college, I didn't have a thing. You know, there were jocks, there were brainiacs. So my thing was, I'm shorter than all of you people, but I can drink everybody under the table. And I was a throw up, piss your pants, blackout, pass out kind of drunk. And it was sloppy because I could never predict what order those things were going to happen in. So some nights were more embarrassing than others, you know, and I just went all in, you know, like 
I drank as much as I could. And I also was bingy, right? So I would like drink and get really messy for a while and then kind of pull my shit together and then drink and get messy for a while and pull my shit together. And then like somewhere in the middle of sophomore year, I realized if I continue like this, I'm not getting out of here. So I better like pull this together. My parents had gone bankrupt. So I kind of had to manage myself better and work and get a job and and all sorts of stuff. So I was able to kind of pull together was also where sort of my coming out sort of starts happening as I'm returning from college and working in Manhattan and, you know, answering the back of the village voice ads. And if you're not from this area, that was like the 900 numbers or the 976 numbers and beginning to explore like this secret world of like hooking up with people randomly. Right. Because I grew up in the 70s, 80s and 90s as a 52 year old male, you know, it wasn't okay to come out, right? At least not in my family. I didn't think it was going to be. So all of my gay experiences were very sort of seedy and sort of backdoor and behind the scenes kind of experience, which was a really good parlay into the world of drugs and alcohol, right? Like that was seedy and, and, and mysterious. But like, I was a terrible drinker because I mean, I was really good at it, but I was terrible at handling what happened when I was drunk, right? So two DWIs, both of which I was driving 45 minutes in the opposite direction of where I was headed. It's a miracle I didn't kill myself or somebody else. And that's those moments where I have to go back in my story and go, that was a power greater than myself keeping me alive. And... You know, like I'd go to dollar drink night when they had those such things, right? And spend like $40. That's not a good sign. I'm sure some of it was tips, yeah. but probably not a whole lot. And then, you know, moving into going out in the city, I was introduced to the world of club drugs, which were great because they were like the after effects weren't as bad. It felt so much better. I'm an addict. So I would take it from like, you know, one ecstasy and a little bit of K and going to one place and being home at a semi-reasonable time in the morning to I needed an extra pill and more of this because I had to go to another club, you know, and to the point where I was like hallucinating that everybody in the club knew a choreographed routine and I was the only one that didn't know it. Oh, no, that sounds like a nightmare. I thought it was hysterical. Mm-hmm. So, and right, because that's what I do. I take it too far. And, and, you know, and somebody at that time when I was living in Manhattan introduced me to crystal meth. And I said yes. And, you know, that was a big part of that was a trapdoor. It was a secret passageway to the conservatory that I was not expecting. It was a moment where I went, Oh my God, because it silenced all the crazy better than anything I had ever put in my body before that. I never felt that good. I never felt so sexy, right? Like I had all this, you know, internal (sighs) shitty feeling about myself. Right. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't hot enough. I wasn't this enough. But like if we were all on an even playing field and high, 
Like I walked into that room like I was like King Dick and I was going to be in charge of everything. And you're going to put this CD on and change that porn to this. And that lube is crap. Let's go. We're going to fix this right now. I was like the Martha Stewart of like, you know, sexual encounters on crystal meth, you know, and when I I lived in San Francisco for a little bit after, you know, I started and I started out really sort of nonchalantly, quietly, a little bit here, a little bit there. And soon enough, it was pushing into the week. I lost a job. And I showed up at the like last vestige meeting high as a fucking kite. And they were like, are you doing drugs? Because we'll get you help. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, fast forward. I came home. I tried to do it again. I stayed clean for a year. But the minute somebody asked me, and I think the dangerous thing about this was I began to draw these boxes and put these parameters around my use. That would keep me safe and allow me to use without going overboard. And I have to say, surprisingly enough, for a large part of that time, I actually stayed within those boxes. And at this point, I was binging for like six months on, six months off, six months on, six months off. And the third winter that I went to do this, it just got really fucking sloppy. The wheels came off the bus. And I just got caught, you know, and luckily my family decided that they were no longer going to co-sign my bullshit. And my brother, who was luckily 10 years sober at the time, showed up and was like, I'm here to tell you, you got to leave the house because mom and dad don't want you here anymore. Now we can fix this if you'll do what I tell you to do. You know, and... I'm 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 grateful that I just kind of sat down and said, okay, you know, and I had had physical bottoms, you know, coming home from San Francisco, weighing like 85 pounds, being green. I'd had financial bottoms in running out of money and tapping everybody I knew. You know, I've had I had emotional bottoms where I was like, I'm so tired of this. But it wasn't until that morning after running, like I knew the jig was up that weekend because family members had kind of tried to contact me. So I decided I was going to shut off the phone and go until I ran out of gas, drugs and money. Luckily, I ran out of them in the opposite order. So I ran out of gas last. I managed to get home first. You know, and I listened to a voicemail after I turned on the phone and it was my mom. You know, the one person who my entire life had always loved me unconditionally, no matter what. And the message said, you fucking, you dirty motherfucker. That's what she called me. You dirty motherfucker, get out of my house. I'm done. And that was the moment where I realized I had become something I could no longer tolerate. It was a spiritual bottom, right? You know, and I have to have that in order to really do step one and realize that I have to surrender. So that was the end, right? Yeah. And in some ways, it's kind of the beginning. I mean, what was it like 
getting sober from there and staying sober so long. So I went to rehab and I didn't know how it worked. So I just went there for the interview and they were like, there's a bed for you. And I was like, okay, we'll be back tomorrow. And she was like, no, sweetie, that's not how this works. So I remember going out to the waiting room and saying to my brother, Dennis, I think I need to stay here. And he was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, as long as you could bring my stuff back. uh, I think so. Then, of course, I got like up to the hospital ward and like sat on the crinkly rubber mattress and was like, maybe I could just stay here for like three days and like then go to the dealer's house and stay there. And that night they brought an AA meeting in and I swear the speaker was brought in just for me. And I think that that was sort of the first place I decided to drop some of my will and listen and try to make the best of it, right? You know, and and that's what it became. So I went from inpatient to outpatient. I got humble real quick because I had no place to live. And when my brother came, I was like, well, you own a building. You could let me have an apartment. And he was like, no, but my wife and I will let you move in to our house. You know, and I was like, okay. And I'm grateful for that because it taught me how to be part of a family unit again where I was having dinner with my brother and his wife and their kid. You know, I had been in retail for a really long time. And when I got out of rehab, I had started prior to rehab a teaching program for alternate route, which I had to abandon. I worked with my brother in real estate and I just kept saying like, I wanted to go back to that. So, you know, I got my first teaching job in sobriety. I got my all my certifications in sobriety. I did my 90 and 90. I got a sponsor. I became active, you know, in AA and CMA. And, you know, it was it was good. It was great, right? It was harder to go to gay meetings for me because the only way I knew how to relate to other gay men, particularly attractive gay men, was like high with you know, sort of all the barriers knocked down for me, right? Like where I didn't have to think about what you were thinking about me. And that was a challenge for me. It was hard for me to connect with people in the rooms beyond like my sponsor and a very small group of of sober buddies, you know, and I got to my first year and kind of abandoned the rooms of CMA first because I was uncomfortable and stuck with AA for another like six months. And then I moved and, you know, became inconvenient to go to meetings. And by the grace of God, state's over, right? You know, because my thinking kicked in almost immediately because being my own sponsor, bad idea, totally bad idea. And after my dad passed away, which was amazing because we like had this amazing ability to rebuild this relationship to the point where, you know, when I was in San Francisco on 9-11 calling home to find out if everybody was okay, he was like screaming and yelling at me and telling me, you know, you're probably sitting your ass on everything you can. And to me walking into the hospital and him grabbing my hand and saying, oh, I'm so glad it's you that's here today. You know, and I sat with him when he when he died. You know, and that's a gift of sobriety for me, right? You know, but I 
did go back to those rooms and I went back to CMA meetings and I was a different person and I was ready to connect and I was ready to throw myself into service. And I began doing service and sponsoring people, you know, and, you know, chairing meetings and sharing at meetings and just getting back in the middle of the boat, you know, and there's nothing, there's nothing better than talking to somebody who understands from the insider's point of view, you know, and, and that's been great, you know, and through my recovery and doing all the step work and helping other people, you know, I was at a, a conference where a friend was going to a, um, a workshop on trauma and I was like, I'll come and support you. And all of a sudden this woman is talking and I'm like, oh, I have trauma. Right. And I don't, you know, I think sometimes we think of trauma as these like huge experiences, but like I was hearing this trauma of the way my dad would talk to us or the way my mom would keep secrets or the, the way we were all kept in line. There are eight kids, you know, all the friends you'll ever need are around this table. You don't need anybody else, which I became interested to find out how did that stuff play out in my life and is it holding me back somewhere, right? And that stuff that didn't get covered in my step work. Um, but therapy came into my life at 13 years sober and has been an amazing tool, you know? So I love that I get to remain teachable in this program, you know, and that at Six, 15 years sober, I just, I, I got to put a name on certain feelings of anxiety and depression, you know, and looking at those and, you know, you know, that's a whole nother layer to the whole thing. Yeah. And with so many gifts of sobriety, what would you say your favorite part of being sober is? That I am present for everything that happens in my life now, that I am I went from you're the youngest, you don't get a say to everybody wants me to fix all of their problems in my family, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and it's interesting because being the youngest and sober, I have such a different perspective looking up at the bunch, I call them because they're all sort of clustered together and I'm pretty far behind and knowing like what the program has done for me and my relationships and just wanting to be like, Oh, you could use this. You really, you know, you could probably use this. Yeah. And I know we, we, you spoke a little bit about how, when you were younger, some of like your first feelings of, you know, shame were regarding gender and sexuality. I mean, how did those feelings develop or you feel play a role in your addiction? I think that, that, that whole, idea of shame and hiding and leading to acting out sexually in a very seedy sort of way definitely made that transition into, you know, alcoholism, you know, took that away. Right. So when I started drinking, I didn't feel bad about feeling different. You know, I needed alcohol to go to my first gay bar Mm -hmm. because That was the only thing that made me comfortable. Same with when I started using drugs, right? I couldn't go to the Roxy, you know, scrawny old me, you know, but boy, did that ecstasy make me not give a shit about who was there and 
who was looking and I would go into my own little world. You know, like I needed that substance just to be around other gay people. And I really do believe that it's from that like guilt and shame that I felt around it for so long. Yeah. And how would you say that that's evolved or changed with the way you feel about our community and your place in it now that you're sober? I think that in that world, this so like I've learned to have intimate relationships with gay men that have nothing to do with sex. It's not transactional. It has nothing to do with what I can offer you with my body. It has everything to do with what I can offer you with what my journey has been. So it has definitely changed my perception of my place in the gay culture and gay society. You know, and I've grown into my daddy phase. You know, I'm a man of a certain age, (laughs) you know, and, you know, I, I love that I have people who look to me as sort of like a den mother, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Whereas, you know, before I got sober, I couldn't find my place here. Like I just couldn't find my place here. And I think the best thing about recovery, you know, there's is like letting go and letting things play out and find their way. Like I don't proverbially always have to be that kid in the corner trying to shove the square peg in the round hole. Mm -hmm. Like I find that like things fit naturally when I just kind of take the next right actions and, and keep going. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't have to be a fucking knucklehead and try to make everything happen. Yeah. And in terms of keeping yourself accountable, like what are some practices you, you use in your daily life to keep you sober? So staying connected to my sponsor is important. You know, using my sober network is always really key. You know, I try to make sure that my sober network is also diverse And like, and I don't mean just like people with different lengths of time, people who come from different backgrounds, different colors, different ethnicities, races, gender identities, ages, newly sober, sober long term. You know, like I need a variety of voices in my life to help me understand the world around us and the world as it is. Right. So keeping that sober tribe alive, active, and vibrant is really important to me. Working with my sponsees, you know, like right now, both of my sponsees have time and I don't really interact with them as much as I would like to. But like, you know, that means like, okay, so am I ready to take on a newcomer again? You know, like, am I at that level? You know, and I also go to therapy and, you know, see mental health practitioners, which has become a really good tool of sobriety, like finding someone who specializes in like gay recovery therapy has made a huge difference for me in in, in long term sobriety, where I find I want to try to dig a little bit deeper under the surface, you know, beyond the step work. Yeah. And one question I always love hearing the answer from because we all have different favorite mantras or quotes. Do you have a favorite one that you live by in recovery? 
I think it definitely, it sounds corny, but it's the let go, let God. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus, take the wheel. It is so much better when I'm not in the driver's seat. It really, really is. The best things that have come to me in my sobriety, whether it be, you know, going back to school or getting a new job or becoming an elementary school principal or changing jobs, which I just did recently after, you know, eight years in the same position is I literally did my part, kind of let go of it. And then all of a sudden, like, it's like a roadmap that just starts sort of unfolding in front of you. And like, I know that when that feel like there's this feeling that comes with it, that it's like, okay, let me take these steps and see where this goes. You know, if I am like, again, that kid trying to shove the square peg in the round hole and be like, I want this job opportunity and it needs to work out or, you know, it's not going to work. You know, so for me, that is it's the saying that proves itself to be correct the most. Yeah, I I agree. It's definitely a good one and a classic for a reason. Oh, definitely. Thank you for sticking around. We can keep on talking all day and we actually will talk for a little bit longer. We're going to head on over to our Patreon feed in a moment. But for now, why don't we let the listeners know where they can find you? Maybe on Instagram? Sure. On Instagram, I am HeyMarco8. That's H-E-Y-M-A-R-K-O, number eight. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for being on, Mark. It was a pleasure getting to know you better. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm happy to be able to share my experience. Yes. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into another episode of Gay A. You can make sure you follow us wherever you're listening so you can get new episodes when they come out every Thursday. And you can also head on over to our Patreon page for an exclusive after show I'm about to record with Mark, as well as post shows every week. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com backslash gay a podcast thank you so much and until next time stay sober friends